Grab your Bibles and turn to 1 Kings chapter 20. I'm sure we've all heard the saying, if you don't stand for something, you'll fall for anything. That saying, I believe, describes the man that we've been looking at for a few weeks in 1 Kings, a man named Ahab. We've seen how he has rejected God's word again and again and again. He's ignored the warnings that have come to him through the prophet Elijah. Ahab has been far too busy in his own personal pursuits to ever believe that God's judgment would finally come on him. And today, I really wrestled with how to handle these last three chapters of 1 Kings as we're going through the entire Bible. It's difficult to know sometimes what pace to take with different um, sections. I was going to do one week per chapter, but I just feel like the more I studied it, that these three chapters deserve to be looked at together because they give us the final sequence of events that led to the downfall of King Ahab. And so last week, we spent the entire sermon looking at three verses. Today, we're going to look at three chapters. And don't get nervous about that. It won't take more than two and a half hours, I'm pretty sure. (laughs) But today, in these last three chapters, we see a very sad progression, a downward trajectory of a man's life that comes to a tragic end. And we see in all of this, how God's word is proven true once again. King Ahab, as you know, ruled Israel. The Bible has told us more than once that he did more evil in the sight of the Lord than all those kings who came before him. And I'll tell you, that's saying something. That's saying something. And by the way, one phrase that uh, I've meant to point out as we've been going through this, it's very important. As it's talked about these kings, and it said, so-and-so did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. So-and-so did what was right in the sight of the Lord. I want you to know the key phrase there is not evil and it's not right. It's in the sight of the Lord. And if you want to do a study on that, go through it and highlight every time that appears. It's very powerful because we may look at someone's life and think, oh, they're not doing what's right. But that's in our eyes. The key phrase here, and it repeats it again and again and again, Ahab did what was evil in the sight or in the eyes of the Lord. Very important. So Ahab is now, he's run his course. He's rejected God time and time again. God could have destroyed him with a single word. And yet here in 1 Kings chapter 20, we see the extraordinary grace and patience and mercy and kindness of God. God is still extending opportunities to this wicked man, one after the other, in hopes that he'll repent and turn to God. Here's a quick summary of what's happening in chapter 20 as it opens. There's a man named Ben-Hadad who is the king of Aram, and he formed alliances with 32 other kings. And the opening verses tell us that these 33 armies went together and they surrounded the city of Samaria where King Ahab resided and where he ruled. And this must have been a terrifying sight for the king and for the people of Samaria to look out over the walls. And we'll see a little bit later on that the armies filled the country, it said. Filled the countryside. And they look over the walls and this is an absolutely terrifying moment for them. And to make it a little worse, to just sort of uh, add salt to the wound, we're told here in these verses that Ben-Hadad sent a message to King Ahab 
And he said, we're coming to take your gold and your silver, your wives and your children. Now that's smack talk, right? He's saying, you you see we're here, but here's what we're going to do. And to show you what a spineless wimp Ahab is, doesn't stand for anything, he sends a reply back and he says, okay, you can have it all. That's a great leader, huh? Hey, man, I don't want to fight. You, you can come and have it all. Have our gold, our silver, our wives, our children. And what he's doing, I believe, this isn't explicitly stated, but as you follow the story through, I believe Ahab is, is uh, such a spineless man that he's trying to earn favor with Ben-Hadad. He's trying to get on his good side and say, hey, listen, man, can we be pals? You know, if we do that, then will you back off? Even later in this story, he, uh, he calls Ben-Hadad his brother. He's trying, to, he's trying to buddy up to him. Can I just tell you, never negotiate with a bully. You're wasting your time. There are times when you need to stand up uh, and you need to drop the bully to the ground. That's sometimes the only language they understand. Now, I know you say, oh, that's horrible. Jesus always turned the other cheek. I understand it. But if it's your child, your daughter, your son, there are times when the person just needs to be put in their place in a holy and reverent way. (laughs) Don't ever negotiate with a bully. And this is what I believe Ahab is trying to do. And boy, did it backfire on him. So we pick up now in verse 13, 1 Kings chapter 20, verse 13. So while all this is going on, It says, and behold, a prophet approached Ahab, king of Israel, and said, this is what the Lord says. Have you seen all this great multitude? Ahab's like, yes, of course I have. He said, behold, I will deliver it into your hand today, and you will know that I am the Lord. Wow. Ahab is completely outnumbered. He has zero chance of winning this war. And yet God sends a prophet in and says, Ahab, I want so badly for you to know me that I'm willing to give your little puny self the victory over these 33 armies just so that you will know that I am God and you'll praise me. You feel the heart of God? So Ahab sends his army out, and just as the Lord said, he defeats all those who were surrounding his city. This was an impossible victory for him to gain. There's no way he could have done this on his own. There's no way he could have missed the fact that God brought this victory about. And the only reason God gave him the victory, as I said, was so that Ahab would come to know the Lord. And we see this throughout the Old Testament. When David was charging uh, down the valley and up the other side to fight Goliath, his desire was not that he would become famous, but his desire was that by slaying Goliath, that all the ends of the earth would know that the Lord is God. That was his desire. Well, Ahab gladly accepted this victory, but it didn't change his heart at all. He still didn't see God in all of this. And during this battle, we're told that Ben-Hadad, the king of Aaron, escaped, and he began rebuilding his forces. So now some time passes, and we're told that he comes back and he attacks Israel a second time. And again, Israel is horribly outnumbered. Verse 27. I'm just giving you an overview of chapter 20 as we dive into 21 and 22 in just a sec. Verse 27. And the children of Israel were numbered and given provisions, and they went against them. Now the children of Israel encamped before them like two little flocks of goats, while the Syrians filled the countryside. You get the picture here. Israel's entire army 
Compared to this vast army coming against them, Israel looks like two little scraggly flocks of goats. They don't stand a chance. And just like before, God extends another opportunity to Ahab to repent and turn to him. We're told that a man of God came to Ahab just as before and said, the Lord is going to deliver this entire army into your hand. And if I can be redundant again, I'm not sure what that's called, but why did God do this? He did it for one reason, so that Ahab would know that the Lord is God and would turn his heart to him. Ahab had committed unspeakable evil, he and his wife Jezebel, and yet God is still trying to reach him. This speaks of the incredible patience and mercy and love and grace of God. How many times in your life and mine did God have every right to say, I am so done with you. You just crossed the line. I cannot take another day of your sin. Oh, maybe 10,000 times with me? I don't know. The Bible says God doesn't want anyone to perish. He wants everyone to come to repentance. That's why he sent his son. Everybody knows John 3.16, but nobody knows John 3.17. It says, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. That's the heart of God. And we see it played out so beautifully here. Even even after all his sin, God is still saying, Ahab, turn to me, turn to me. There's still time. But even after God did this twice for Ahab, allowed him to win these incredible battles, Ahab still didn't repent. He had seen the power of God. Let's not forget chapter 18, when Elijah was on Mount Carmel with Ahab and Jezebel's 450 prophets of Baal, and God sent fire from heaven and consumed the altar and defeated those false prophets. Ahab saw that. Would you not think if you saw something like that, you would turn to God and follow him for the rest of your life? See, this is the problem. I I mentioned this either last week or the week before. People say, oh, if God would just show me something, then, then I'd believe. No, you wouldn't. You wouldn't. Thomas had to see to believe, and I get that. Jesus said, blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. If you, I don't know why I'm saying this. It's not in my notes, but maybe there's someone here. You've been sort of holding out on God. You've been sort of challenging him and saying, God, if you would just write a message in the sky, if you would just heal aunt so-and-so, if you would just give me this job, if you would just do this amazing thing, then I would believe in you. I tell you what, you're, you're about to build your faith on a very shaky foundation. Because the next time God doesn't come through for you in your eyes, are you going to turn your back on him? You're going to shake your fist at him. Ahab had seen the power of God more than you and I probably will ever in our life. But he was determined to remain the ruler of his own life. He would not humble himself and allow God to rule over him. And in addition to not repenting, we're told at the end of this chapter that Ahab also refused to put Ben-Hadad to death, which he was commanded to do. And so the prophet said to him, because you have done this, it's going to be your life for his life, your people for his people. And look how Ahab responded in verse 43 of chapter 20. So the king of Israel went to his house sullen and angry. Now we're starting to see this side of Ahab that's really, really ugly. This spoiled little brat 
who when he doesn't get his way, he takes his ball and he storms off the playground and he goes home. And I think it's interesting here as well in verse 43, it's just a small thing that caught my attention. It didn't say, so Ahab went to his house sullen and angry. It said, the king of Israel. It's pointing out, listen, buddy, you're the king. What are you, what are you doing acting like this? And we see more of this play out in chapter 21. So turn the page. Let's go to 21, verse 1. I think many people are familiar with this story, although it's rarely taught on anymore. I, haven't, I can't remember the last time I heard anything on this. 1 Kings 21.1, And it came to pass after these things that Naboth the Jezreelite had a vineyard which was in Jezreel next to the palace of Ahab, king of Samaria. He picked a bad neighborhood. Verse 2, And Ahab said to Naboth, Give me your vineyard, that I may have it for a vegetable garden, because it is near my house, and I will give you a better vineyard for it, or, if it seems good to you, I'll give you its value in money. But Naboth said to Ahab, The Lord forbid that I should give this inheritance of my fathers to you. So Ahab went into his house, sullen and angry, because of what Naboth the Jezreelite had said to him, For he had said, I will not give you the inheritance of my fathers. And he, that's Ahab, lay down on his bed and turned away his face and would eat no food. Here's the king of Israel who, with God's help, has just defeated the entire Syrian army, not once, but twice. But now he's reduced to a sulking child because he can't have everything he wants. And you might look at this and say, well... Just by reading these verses, Phil, why didn't Naboth just sell the land to Ahab? It seemed like he was offering him a fair deal. Well, to us it might seem that way, but there's much more going on here than meets the eye. You see, God had strictly forbidden Israel from selling the land that he had given to them for their inheritance. They were allowed to lease it for a period of time, but then on the year of Jubilee, the person who had the land was required to give it back to the original owner, because the promised land that God gave to his people, remember he promised Abraham, it will be yours and your descendants forever. They were not allowed to permanently sell their land. I'll give you a couple quick examples. Leviticus 25, 23, God said, the land shall not be sold permanently for the land is mine, for you are strangers and sojourners with me. Numbers 36.7 says, The inheritance of the children of Israel shall not change hands from tribe to tribe, for every one of the children of Israel shall keep the inheritance of the tribe of his fathers. Now, living in Israel where he did, Ahab knew this. He had to. And so what we, what we must see just beneath the, the text level here, what's going on, Ahab isn't just trying to buy this property. He's trying to get a follower of God, to directly disobey God's commands. That's why Naboth responded the way he did. He wasn't being a smart aleck. He was standing true to the commands of God. He didn't say, I won't sell this to you right out. He said, I can't give up this land. This is God's inheritance to me and to my family. And I think it should speak volumes to us that here's this little unknown man, Naboth, who's living in a land filled with idolatry, and yet his knees had not bowed to Baal. We're told in earlier chapter when Elijah thought that he was the only one still standing for God. I mean, that's how bad the land was. Lord, I look around, I think I'm the only one still living for you. 
And, and God said, no, no, it's okay. I've, I've reserved 7,000 who haven't bowed their knee to Baal yet. Just 7,000 in the entire nation. And Naboth here, really an unknown guy in Scripture, but wow, what a guy. He's one of those people who, despite the pressure, has not bowed his knee to Baal. He's not willing to compromise the commands of the Lord, and so he stands up to wicked King Ahab, even though he knows it could cause his death. And so Ahab is there sulking in his room, and his wife Jezebel wants to know where he is, and she goes up and finds him in his room, laying on his bed, sucking on his binky, and she says, uh, she says, what's the matter, honey? And he says, Naboth won't give me his vineyard. I think it was said like that. If you read the text, it honestly, that's pretty much what I think he said. And so in essence, Jezebel says to him, honey, honey, don't you worry. Don't you worry. You're the king of Israel, sweetie. Get up and act like the king of Israel, and mommy will take care of everything. And so Jezebel concocts this evil plan to have two men falsely accuse Naboth of something very serious. And when they did, Naboth was found guilty on false charges and he was executed. Now, I just want to know, how does that stand up to some of the teaching today? About God, oh, if you're, if you're following God, you're going to be in a year of favor with him and he's going to give you the best parking place everywhere you go. Really? You know what? Sometimes you will die for doing the right thing. Never mind getting a stupid parking place. When Saul was converted and became Paul, the Lord said, go tell him how much he is going to suffer for my sake. You know, tell I get irked by some of that teaching. Boy, it just bothers me. Because I talk to people. I have people talk to me about it. And they're just lost. They're confused by, by all of this. You know, why did, why did my family member die? I'm following the Lord. It causes tremendous confusion and heartache in people. We're subject to the same ups and downs, good and bad, joy and sorrow that everyone else in this world is subject to. All of us are. So Naboth is sentenced to death. And as soon as he is, we're told that Jezebel goes to Ahab and says, Hey, honey, he's dead. Go get the land. And that's exactly what he does. Ahab walks across the street and he takes the land. You know one thing that's glaringly absent to me in this text? No one. There was not one person who kind of cleared his throat and said, um, you know, Jezebel, this is not right. You shouldn't do this. Not one person. And the reason is Ahab and Jezebel had surrounded themselves with people who would only tell them what they want to hear. The one person who warned them that judgment was coming is the one person they should have listened to, but they completely ignored. And sure enough, God's judgment falls on Ahab and Jezebel. Verse 17 of chapter 21, Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite, saying, Arise, go down to meet Ahab king of Israel, who is in Samaria. Behold, he is in the vineyard of Naboth. Oh, hello. God gave him the exact location. Sent him straight to the scene of the crime. He's in the vineyard of Naboth where he has gone down to take possession. Verse 19. And you shall say to him, thus says the Lord, have you killed and also taken possession? And you shall say to him, thus says the Lord, in the place, and I apologize, this is, this is tough reading on a Sunday morning. In the place where dogs licked up the blood of Naboth, shall dogs lick your own blood, yes, even yours. Have a nice day, Can you imagine? 
I'm not talking about domesticated dogs. These are wild dogs, by the way. So Elijah does that. He obeys once again. He goes to face Ahab, and he delivers this message of judgment. And the astonishing thing is, in verses 25 to 29, we see it says that Ahab did terrible evil in the sight of the Lord, and yet when Elijah pronounced this judgment, Ahab humbled himself. And for a moment, for a brief moment, we get all excited and we say, wow, finally, finally he's turning to the Lord. Because Ahab humbled himself, God delayed the judgment on Ahab, but God didn't take away the judgment. Why? Because we find out soon that Ahab's humility was a false humility. His repentance was a false repentance. He wasn't sorry for his sin. He was just sorry that he got caught. You ever been pulled over for speeding? Say, officer, I'm sorry. I wasn't paying attention. No, you're not sorry. You're not, neither am I when I've been caught speeding. I mean, I haven't ever. Let's just say that I have. Because pastors don't, don't ever get stopped for speeding or lying in the pulpit. Um, but, you know, you say, oh, sorry, officer. But you're not. You're not sorry for speeding. You're sorry you've got to pay the fine and get two points on your license now. That's why you're sorry. And that's exactly what is going on with Ahab. On the surface, it's like, yeah, this is great. He's repenting. But God knows the heart. God says, okay, Ahab, you know what? Just because you've even tried, I'm going to delay this judgment on you. And again, I, I just marvel at the goodness of God. There's a right kind of repentance and there's a wrong kind. 2 Corinthians 7.10 tells us that godly sorrow... Godly sorrow. Did you know there's a good kind of sorrow? The sorrow over your sin? My sin? Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret. But worldly sorrow brings death. So here's the thing. If Ahab had shown godly sorrow, God would have forgiven him. You understand the magnitude of that statement? Ahab, the one who had done more evil in the sight of the Lord, than all the kings who came before him. If he had repented with godly sorrow, God would have wiped his slate clean. But he only had worldly sorrow, that, that temporary kind that hope, hopes to get you out of trouble. And in the last chapter, we're going to see now in the closing moments where that caused Ahab to end up. So in chapter 23, and I know this is confusing, there's a lot of kings entering the picture, but we're, we're introduced to Jehoshaphat, who was the king of Judah at the time. So Ahab was king of Israel, uh, Jehoshaphat was king of Judah. This is because the nation has divided now against God's desire. The kingdom has split, uh, and so we've got, we've got two kings ruling now instead of one. And so... Jehoshaphat, who we're told later in this chapter, is a man who did what was right in the sight of the Lord, except that, it says this, he did what was right in the sight of the Lord, he walked in the ways of the Lord, except, and you go, oh, no, except that he did not destroy the places of idol worship, and the people still sacrificed to false gods, and it says, and he made a treaty or a friendship with King Ahab, oh. We see him entering the scene here in chapter, uh, I might have said 20, 23. We see him entering the scene, coming up to Ahab, and they're talking, and Ahab says, hey, I want you to go to war with me against Aram. But first, Ahab 
calls in all his false prophets, and he says to them, prophesy for me, tell me, should I go into battle, am I going to win? Now remember, Ahab has only surrounded himself with people who will tell him what he wants to hear. And so all of his prophets said, oh yes, go up to war, go up to war, you'll definitely win. And Jehoshaphat's standing there, now remember, he's, a, he's trying to walk in the ways of the Lord. He has no business even in the, being in the room with Ahab. And you can feel the tension in these verses. We don't have time to read them all. You can feel that something is off between these two. They're speaking a different language. They're looking at this from two totally different perspectives. They have no business forming a treaty together. And so the false prophets say, yes, go up, you'll win the battle. And and it says Jehoshaphat's standing there and he says, hey, uh, is there maybe a prophet of the Lord anywhere that we could inquire of first? We could ask him. And Ahab says, well, yes, there's the prophet Micaiah, but he says, I hate him because he never prophesies anything good about me. I mean, what a spineless guy this is. Well, Jehoshaphat wins out. They end up calling God's prophet Micaiah, who's totally unknown in the Bible, but what a man of God and a man of bold faith he is. He comes before the king and he says in 1 Kings 22, 17, He says, I saw all Israel scattered on the mountains as sheep that have no shepherd. And the Lord said, these have no master. Now, what he's doing is he's giving a direct condemnation straight to Ahab's face. And he's saying, Ahab, the the reason that the people of Israel are wandering around like sheep without a shepherd is because you have failed to provide godly leadership for them. Can I just tell you, you can rubber stamp this on any nation in the world at any time in history, and it's still true. A nation without godly leadership is going to end up in trouble. It's so rare to see godly leaders today. I almost don't even remember what a godly leader in Washington looks like. just don't even remember. So far gone. Verse 18, And the king of Israel said to Jehoshaphat, Did I not tell you he would not prophesy good about me, but evil? Ahab is so used to getting his own way that he refuses to even listen to input, any kind of um, correction. He just won't take it. Micaiah, the prophet, made Ahab feel bad because he exposed his sin. He ruffled his feathers. Micaiah wouldn't give him any peace, and Ahab didn't like that. But that's what true prophets do. It's false prophets who say, peace, peace, when there is no peace. And they'll lead you down the path of doom. And I'll tell you, folks, I I say this quickly. there, There are Ahabs found in every church. Because none of us like being rebuked. None of us like being called to repentance. None of us like being called to change our ways. And what we need to pray for is a spirit that is contrary to Ahab. That every time we hear the word of God, we would be meek and teachable and open to what it says. We should be willing to say, Lord, if your word draws blood and wounds me, if that's what it takes for me to be conformed to Christ and lead a holy life, then that's what I want. It's not easy to say that, but it's right. It's what we need. Listen, all of us, we're rebels, all of us. Our old human nature wants so bad to turn away from God. It's that fight we feel every day as a follower of Christ. 
It's not because you're failing the test. It's not because you're not doing it right. The fight is there to remind you that you're saved. And there's this war going on now. And boy, don't ever, don't ever let yourself get to the place where you've formed calluses on your ears and calluses on your heart that you don't hear God's word anymore. Be very careful. Be very careful. Ahab was, was not willing to hear the truth, and that's a very dangerous place to be in life. Proverbs 29.1 says, He who is often rebuked and hardens his neck will suddenly be destroyed, and that without remedy. That's a terrifying verse. And sadly, that's exactly what's about to happen to Ahab. In the verses that follow here, Micaiah continues speaking the truth of God to Ahab, and for telling the truth, Micaiah gets punched in the face and thrown in prison. I'll tell you, men like Micaiah were rare in Ahab's day, and they're rare in our day. They're rare. He was prepared to to be a lone voice in the midst of wickedness. And I'm telling you, folks, if you're following Christ, more often than not, you're going to be seen as the odd one out. And you'll always be under pressure to compromise and conform to those around you. And so I wonder, are, are you willing to be a lone voice for God amongst the other students on your campus, among the people that you work with, among unsaved family and friends? Well, verse 29 says, So the king of Israel and Jehoshaphat king of Judah, went up to Ramoth-Gilead. And the king of Israel said to Jehoshaphat, that's Ahab, said to Jehoshaphat, I'll disguise myself and go into battle, but you put on your robes, in other words, your king's robes. Now, you may see what's about to happen here. I mean, this guy is a snake, not a friend. He's actually throwing Jehoshaphat under the bus here. So the king of Israel disguised himself and went into battle. So Ahab is trying to be really clever here. He's he, he thought he could escape God's judgment, which he knows is coming. So he, instead of putting on his kingly robes and going into battle, which kings always did, and they were easily recognized on the battlefield, he dresses himself up just as a common soldier. He knew that the enemy was going to try and target him specifically, and that's exactly what they did. We're told in the following verses that uh, the, the captains told their soldiers, Don't go after anybody, great or small, except the king of Israel. We got to find him. We got to kill him. And so they come out on the battlefield and they're looking around. They don't see anybody in kingly robes. And there they spot one. And the Bible says they chase after this guy and they surround him and they look and go, "Ah, it's not Ahab, it's Jehoshaphat. They turned around and they left and went to look for Ahab. And so just about the time Ahab is convinced that he's outsmarted God, Just about the time he's convinced that his clever disguise has allowed him to escape God's coming judgment, we get to verse 34 of 1 Kings 22. I want you to really watch this. Now a certain man drew a bow at random and struck the king of Israel between the joints of his armor. So he said, Ahab said to the driver of his chariot, turn around and take me out of the battle for I'm wounded. And the battle increased that day, and the king was propped up in his chariot facing the Syrians and died at evening. Now watch this. Seems like an unnecessary thing to say, except for what God prophesied through Elijah last chapter. The blood ran out from the wound onto the floor of the chariot. In other words, it pooled up in the floor of the chariot. Just keep that in mind. A random shot at a random moment from a random soldier found the tiny opening 
between Ahab's armor and it brought this wicked king's life to an end and fulfilled the prophecy of God. What an extraordinary display of the sovereignty of God over the plans of men. And, and I, as I look at this, I have to think how foolish is it for us to think that we can outsmart God. The Lord had not only said that Ahab was going to be killed, but he said precisely where he'd be killed. Back in verse 20, and the Lord said, this was before the battle, who will persuade Ahab to go up that he may fall at Ramoth Gilead? And so Ahab goes to battle at Ramoth Gilead, exactly where God said he was going to die, and he thinks he's going to fool God and get away with it. Well, we look at that, and I think maybe we tend to stand at a distance somewhat and look down our nose at this and point fingers at Ahab and say, well, what a dummy. Why would anybody be so foolish as to think they could get away from the judgment that God has promised? And yet, don't we do the same sometimes? We read God's word, we hear a sermon, we hear the truth of God, and we leave this place, and before the week's over, we find ourselves doing something that God has strictly told us not to do, or judgment is coming. Aren't we really doing the same thing? Aren't we really saying, eh, I don't, I don't think this is actually, God's not going to come through on this one. I think I can skirt around his judgment. The Bible clearly says, do not be deceived. God is not mocked. Whatever a man sows, that he will also reap. Well, verse 37, and again, these are two tough verses to read. So the king died and was brought to Samaria, and they buried the king in Samaria, and they washed the chariot at the pool of Samaria, and the dogs licked up his blood while the harlots bathed. I mean, what a, just that phrase added in just adds a filthiness to the, to the disgusting, shameful death of this man who rejected God. But let's not miss this last phrase. All of this happened according to the word of the Lord, which he had spoken. You want another phrase to research in the Bible? Research that one through the Old Testament. So-and-so did this according to the word of the Lord. This event came about according to the word of the Lord. It's like a drumbeat through the Old Testament. It's over and over and over and over again. All these things happen not by random chance, although they look like it to us. It happened specifically according to the word of the Lord. Ahab had refused the word of God again and again and again. The word that would have given him life, and he has now died under the judgment of that very word of God. The word that would have given him life is the very word that has now brought him death. And folks, this ought to be a reminder to us of the gospel. The gospel is not just good news. The gospel is also very bad news. And that's why any preacher who says, well, I just don't like to talk about anything negative. Well, my friend, you're not preaching the gospel. Because the good news of the gospel makes no sense. And it is not good news unless you first told people the bad news, that they are rebellious sinners against God, and their sin is going to send them to hell forever unless they repent through the Lord Jesus Christ. If you receive the word of God, you'll receive forgiveness and life. If you reject the word of God, you'll receive judgment and death. 
1 John 5, 11, and 12. And this is the testimony, that God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. It's nowhere else. It's not in Buddha. It's not in Muhammad. It's nowhere else. It's not in Allah. It's in his Son. Verse 12. He, listen how clear this is. He who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have life. Period. They say Christians are narrow-minded. We really are. Because this book is. John 3.18. He who believes in him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already. Why? Because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. See, Ahab's only way to escape the coming judgment was to believe in and receive the word of God. Folks, I want to tell you, your only way of escaping coming judgment is to believe in and receive the word of God. And his name is Jesus. I don't have a slide for this, but surely we all know John 1.1. In the beginning was the word, capital W. The word was with God and the word was God. And that word came and made his dwelling among us. I ask you, have you ever repented of your sin and called upon the name of Jesus for forgiveness and eternal life? It's the most important thing you can ever do. Nothing else matters until that is taken care of. Well, there's so many lessons to be learned, so many applications we could make from, from all of this. You know, I noticed Ahab was only interested in himself. He was only interested in himself and what he wanted, even to the point of allowing an innocent man to be put to death so that he could take his land. And I wonder, how can you and I live in such a way that we would only seek God's will above everything else, including our own desires and plans? Ahab heard the word of God many times, but ultimately he wanted to continue living outside of God's truth. He thought he could outsmart God's word. Do, do we realize that God's word will always come to pass? And let's not miss this part, both his promises and his judgments. Let's not just focus on the judgments. God's word will come to pass. His promises and his, his judgments. Despite Ahab trying to hide from God's judgment, God guided a random arrow from a random bow from a random guy into the tiny gap between the plates of his armor. You know why? Because God is ruler over everything, great and small, and his word will always come to pass. Always. And I wonder, does that fact scare you? Or does that fact give you boldness to live in a world that is out of control? All of God's promises are going to come true. Are you part of his promises? And all of God's judgments are going to come true. Are you still under the judgment of God? If you've never received the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior, folks, I want to tell you, you're sitting here this morning a condemned man, a condemned woman. But you don't have to be. You know, I, I think we sometimes wonder where God is when we look at all the evil around the world and we say, God, are you not going to do anything about this? God's people certainly felt that way living under Ahab and Jezebel when prophets were being slaughtered and idol worship was rampant. And the psalmist Asaph felt this way as well, and he expressed it so beautifully. He said, you know, everywhere I look, 
Wicked people seem to be prospering and getting away with their evil. And then he said, and I close with these two verses, Psalm 73, 16. And boy, 16 without 17 will leave you in a real dark place. He said this, when I thought, this is sort of on the heels of looking at all the wicked people in the world, all the evil running rampant in the world. And he was asking, God, where are you? Why aren't you doing anything about this? Here's what he said. When I thought how to understand this, it was too painful for me. But look what he said in verse 17. Until I went into the sanctuary of God, then I understood their end. Oh, we want God to do something about all this now. God says, you just hold on. My promises are going to be fulfilled, and my judgment's going to be fulfilled. And this is important in, in, lives, in our lives because we so often, look, justice is right. And I've known people who've been treated horribly. They've been, they've been robbed of justice, maybe for the death of a child. The murderer was never convicted, and these parents lived the rest of their lives with this ache. We want justice for our daughter. When, God? God says, just hold on. Hold on. Judgment's coming. No one will escape. No one. Folks, that should, I think, as we, as we live our lives reflecting on the promises and the judgments of God, I think his promises should bring us hope. And I think his judgment should bring us fear and hope. Knowing that in the end, God is going to settle everything. Everything. This is why he said, don't take revenge. No, no, leave it to me. I'll do a much better job than you. So look, let's not be like Ahab, who was determined to, to keep rule over his own life and keep God out. Instead, may we say, Lord, I want you to be king over all of my life. I want to surrender every part to you today. Imagine how God might use all of us for his kingdom. If today we all said, Lord, I surrender everything to you. You can have it all. You willing to do that today? and not end up like Ahab. Let's pray. You've been listening to a broadcast from LifePoint Church in Greenville, South Carolina. If this ministry has touched your life in some way, we would love to hear from you. Just visit our website at www.lifepointsc.org for more information. Or, if you prefer to reach us by letter, you can write to us at P.O. Box 27036, Greenville, South Carolina, 29616, USA. Until next time, may God bless you as you continue to follow Him. to see